invite you to open your Bible this morning to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, as you're doing that, just like to very quickly, why do we do this thing called preaching? We're going to spend the next 30, 35, 40 minutes maybe. Um, you're going to sit there and you're going to listen to a guy talk. Uh, why would you do that? Sunday after Sunday, twice on a Sunday. I think it helps us just uh, to remember that uh, this is, the preaching of the Word of God is one of God's primary means of grace. We find that in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, uh, the people who were filled with the Holy Spirit eagerly devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching every day in the temple courts. They couldn't get enough of the teaching of the apostles as uh, the apostles just took the Word of God and explained uh, what it meant, pointed to Jesus Christ, um, so that God throughout the history of His church, both Old and New Testaments, has used, um, has, has given certain people the, the gifts. He's given gifts all through the body. Some people have the gifts for preaching and teaching, and uh, they're to use that gift because God intends to build up His body through it. And so uh, this morning, the Lord Himself wants to talk to you through His Word. Um, I, I firmly believe that the things that, that I've studied this week are according to the Word of God, and, and I believe they're good applications of that Word for our life. And, uh, if you, uh, but your job is to follow along, keep your Bible open, listen to what I'm saying, uh, to examine whether it is in accordance with the Word of God, to listen with a discerning ear. Don't just believe because, um, because I'm saying it. Uh, is this according to the Word of God? Examine it. And um, trust that the Lord has a message for you this morning, that God's going to build us up together as we give ourselves together uh, to the preaching of the Word of God. So let's, let's listen with ex expectation this morning, and, uh, and I'm going to preach with expectation, believing that the Lord knows what we need to hear, and that Jesus himself is talking here in Luke chapter 13, and he's doing so for our benefit. Let's give our attention then to Luke chapter 13. We're going to read just the first uh, five verses. There were some present at that very time who told him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's the word of our Lord to us this morning. Let's bow our head and ask his blessing. Lord Jesus, now we come to these words. They're strong words, but we thank you that you mean them for life, for you are a Savior. And we thank you that, Lord Jesus Christ, not only do you show us the way to life, you are the way to life. And so I pray that you would draw us to yourself this morning. Speak, Lord, to us by your spirit and through your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, uh, we've come to the portion of uh, Luke's Gospel where he's showing us Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus has set his face ever since chapter 9 to go to Jerusalem, and, and Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die on purpose. He knows what he's about. As you watch Jesus interact with the people in Jerusalem and, and on his way there, you just continue to get the sense that Jesus has perfect spiritual eyesight. Jesus sees 
things spiritually exactly as they are. And he's constantly trying to wake people up to those things. Jesus sees God as he actually is. He knows what God is like. He knows what holiness means. He knows what judgment means. He knows what sin is about and what it deserves. He sees it. He sees it as clearly as you see the people around you this morning. Jesus knew what men were like. He knew what, not only what they said, but he knew what they were thinking. And he not only knew what they were thinking, but he knew the hidden motives and the false assumptions that, that were the spring, the fountain of those thoughts and words. He just got it. He saw it. And so Jesus, when he looked at the crowds that were gathered around him, there were thousands of people following him around. He, he saw the spiritual topography of the land. He, he saw what was going on in front of him, just again, as clearly as you see physically this morning. He had perfect spiritual eyesight. He understood things as they actually are. And so Jesus' words then have that ringing tone of truth. He's not mouthing sentimental thoughts and vague philosophical ideas. He's just speaking what just always rings true. And sometimes in devastating or convicting ways. But that's because, you see, Jesus' intent is to save. His desire is that men would come to repentance and faith and live. And so this morning in our text, again, we're going to see Jesus peeling back layers of unbelief, layers of false assumptions, false ideas, uh, so that, you see, people understand the truth of things so that they repent truly and live. He so eagerly desires people to live. Our text divides easily into three parts, the question, the answer, and the application. Jesus asks a question, he asks it twice, he answers the question, he answers it twice, and he applies the question and does so twice. He wants us to get this. What's the question? Well, let's first look at the context of the question. Luke introduces this event by uh, saying there were some present at that time well, at what time? Well, it, it, this chapter 13 flows directly out of chapter 12. Remember, Luke did not write it with, with chapters and verses. He's just writing a, a story. And this is a continuation. Jesus has been speaking to the people. He, uh, in, in the end of chapter 12, if you remember, Jesus rebuked them for being hypocrites because they were so good at forecasting the weather. They can say, oh, look at it. The south wind is blowing, it's going to be a scorcher tomorrow, and they sort of congratulated themselves on having insight into uh, the events of this world, and yet Jesus says, you hypocrites, you are utterly blind to spiritual truth, to the spiritual world. You have no spiritual insight. You're telling them to wake up, and then in, in verses 57 through 59, tells them to settle up. You are on your way. The law of God is bringing every person on their way to the magistrate. The law has a, uh, a charge against them that they have sinned and deserve to die. Jesus says, settle up. Don't wait until you get in front of the magistrate to settle the matter of your eternal soul. If you wait till then, it's too late. Settle up now in this life and prepare for the life to come. And so it's exactly, you see, in that context that someone pipes up, someone's been listening, 
They've been paying attention to what Jesus is saying. They're connecting the dots. They've heard Jesus say, you need to settle up now because you don't know when your life is going to end. And that triggers a thought in someone's mind. And they, and they tell Jesus, well, well yeah, it's like, it's like those Galileans who were just recently killed by Pilate's soldiers with their sacrifices at the temple. Luke doesn't give any more detail about what actually happened there. Apparently, some Galileans had traveled down to, uh, to Jerusalem, most likely for the Passover, but they had come to offer sacrifices. And while they were offering their sacrifices, Pilate's soldiers had set upon them, had, had for some reason killed them. It would, it's not surprising. Pilate was uh, known to have these outbursts, and Galileans were often a source of, of of just consternation and trouble for him because they were, so, they were such zealots. So it, it makes sense that this would happen. But either way, it's a tragedy. These men had come to Jerusalem and uh, they'd been seized there as they were sacrificed, making their sacrifices so that their blood mingled with the sacrifice. It was a, it was a tragic, shocking event. Undoubtedly, the, the topic of conversation all through Jerusalem. And so this person pipes up and tells the story, reminds Jesus of this event as supporting evidence for what Jesus was saying. You never know when you might be called before the magistrate. But notice Jesus, rather than thanking the person for their contribution to the discussion, Jesus uses it as an opportunity to go deeper, to teach them a deeper lesson. And so he asks this question, do you think... That these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way. He followed it up with a similar example, an identical query, or, or, or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? You see, what Jesus is doing is putting his finger on a very, very common assumption in that day. Uh, he asked this question because that's exactly what they would have been thinking. The people of that day lived with some basic assumptions about the world. One of them was that God was actually engaged and involved in the world so that things came from God's hand, good things and bad things. And they also believed that God was a God of justice and that there was a moral order in the world. So the, the general rule was good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. People still believe this. They just want to remove God from the picture and so they talk about karma. That if you do good things, good things will come back to you. If you do bad things, well, guess what? Karma's going to get you. Well, in those days, people understood there's a personal creator God who oversees the events of the world, and they believed this basic moral order of things. If you were good, you received good. If you were bad, you received bad. Now, they realized that wasn't an ironclad rule. Good people experienced all the normal sort of sorrows and suffering of life. So normal suffering would happen to good people, but notable suffering, notable tragedy, something shocking like these things, that was most likely an indicator of notable sin. That these things didn't just happen. You didn't, you didn't just walk down the street and suddenly a tower falls on you unless something is wrong in your life. We see those assumptions really throughout the Bible. 
Remember when Job uh, suffered his devastation, his, his children died, his, his flocks and herds were all stolen away, the crops were ruined, his own health suddenly taken away from him, his good uh, friend, right, Eliphaz, applies this rule to Job's life. Job 22, is it for your fear of him, God, that he reproves you? Job, is that why God is bringing you into judgment? Is not your evil abundant? There's no end to your iniquities. Now, how does he know that? Well, because he looks at the sorrow, the suffering, and he puts two and two together. These things don't just happen. You find in in um, John 9, the disciples had the same assumption when they come up upon a man born blind from birth. They say, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it his parents or was it this man that he was born blind from birth? A notable tragedy, a notable uh, event of suffering like this that doesn't just happen. Somebody's blown it. In uh, Acts 28, Paul gets shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and he's picking up some, some wood, and he throws it in the fire, and a viper comes out and latches onto his hand. And the, and the people on the island of Malta said, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. You see, people uh, understood great calamities to be indicators of great sin. That's the given assumption. And so these Galileans... The tragedy is real, it's awful, but they must have had it coming to them somehow. And, and the people that the Tower of Siloam fell, I mean, 18 of them died, but there were some others walking right there, and the bricks just seemed to miraculously miss them. So, so these 18, the, the assumption is they've, they were, were sinners of some sort. Well, Jesus absolutely debunks the myth. Jesus answered. Twice, no, in very strong terms. No, I tell you. No, I tell you. It's not right. It's not the right understanding. You see, they thought they were correctly interpreting the spiritual message of these tragedies, but Jesus says you're wrong. You're mistranslating the message. Your assumptions are false. It's not true. That's not why these things have happened. Let me give you two quick lessons and then the main point. And I'll do these first two quick because they're not the main point. But it's just a great reminder to us, on the one hand, to not judge others on the basis of their external circumstances. Uh, just because someone is suffering, maybe just over and over and over again, we, we can be tempted to think, well, something must not be right in their life. Right? If a, a good Christian wouldn't, wouldn't have these sorts of trials... We assume that if you're at the center of God's will, it, it, it ought to look like smooth, balmy sailing, right? That's what the disciples thought when they got in the boat with Jesus and everything blew up in wind and waves. That if we're doing it right, it'll look like smooth sailing. And, then, and if it gets really rough, and if particularly if, if just one thing after another thing after another thing happens, this, the person must be on the edge of the will of God somehow. Well, I tell you, if you had attracted with my family, uh, we had literally one, I mean, the things that happened to, uh, on the farm were unbelievable. Uh, the electrician came and put in a, a, a new uh, circuit, and the next morning we come in the barn, and there, there are um, about eight, nine cows dead because uh, the electricity got into the stanchions, and there were no stanchions all night, and so they just got electrocuted. Um, others aborted because uh, aborted the calves for the same reason. Uh, we had cows die in the most un unbelievable ways. And then, and then the house went on fire, 
And so dad fixed it up in the upstairs, and then about three months later, the whole house burned down. Uh, then dad's health went out. We had PBB back in 1973. We lost the entire herd. They took it up to Kalkaska, and they shot the cows, and um, we just sort of limped along for a while. It was just one thing after another. And if you were to, to say, well, that, that's just evidence that, um, you know, clearly, you, you know, your parents were not in the will of God. I would just say, man, the lessons we learned in those trials were the best lessons we learned our entire life. That it might have very well have been the most loving thing that God did to us. Now, you don't say that easily because it was hard. It was particularly hard for mom and dad. And yet, I think they would say the exact same thing, that God was loving them well. Not to mention they'd lost a child when I was three months old. Got hit by a car, a year and a half, Bobby. So, so let's be careful, you see, about judging people's circumstances and making statements about maybe where they are. And that goes either way. Uh, Begg says so well, he says that there are many sinners skipping their way to hell, and there are many saints hobbling their way to heaven. Let's be careful, you see, about then judging people's character by looking at their external circumstances. And let's do, be careful then when we do it for ourselves. It's so easy when we suffer those trials to think that God is displeased with us, that God is out to get us, and we, we can mis, misunderstand, you see, the reality. We can either misunderstand and mistakenly think that because there are blessings that we must be in the center of God's will, or, be, or, or because there are trials we must be missing the will of God and God's angry with us. No, 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 no. Jesus say, no, I tell you. No, I tell you. The hymn writer says, judge not the Lord by human sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. But those are not the main point. This is the main point. Jesus uh, addresses the assumption that, that these people are worse sinners, and he says, no, that's not how it works. It's not why they suffered. And he answers very strongly, and there may very well have been some in the crowd, and maybe even some here this morning, who question Jesus' response, because there are all kinds of instances in the Bible where God responds directly and immediately to sin. A Sodom and Gomorrah didn't happen just because. Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, in Leviticus chapter 10, we read that they took uh, their censers, they put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And God said to Aaron, don't you weep about this. I will be sanctified in my holy things. And so Aaron kept his peace. 2 Kings chapter 4, the story of Gehazi, the servant of the prophet Elisha. God struck him with leprosy because of his greed. Acts chapter 5, story of Ananias and Sapphira. They sold some land. They came and they said to the apostles, here's the money from the land. And, um, but they lied. It was some of the money, but it wasn't all of it. So when Peter asked them specifically, is this all that you got from the land? They both lied. They both said yes. And they both were struck down dead right in front of the apostle. So there's no denying that God does sometimes engage in this world and interact with, with a flagrant, unrepentant sin in, in deadly ways. That's, that's just truth. And, and it still happens today. Paul talks about that. I believe, uh, maybe, oh, I'm going to forget it. It's First or Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 11. That's why some of you, he says, are sick. They're, they're, they're misusing the table. 
And they're eating and drinking judgment to themselves. And Paul says, that's why some of you are sick and others have died. So we simply don't want to assume that this doesn't happen anymore. It does happen. I've heard too many stories of, of Christians, professing Christians, living in unrepentant sin who suddenly are taken from this earth. It happens. Uh, just listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg recently, he's talking about um, a, a young man that he uh, was pastoring in Scotland, I believe, and um, this man's wife had gone in for surgery, and in the process of the surgery, something had gone wrong. She became a quadriplegic, and it was devastating for this young man. And uh, after time, he began to... Um, get involved with another woman and, and uh, pursue her and had an, uh, having an affair with her. And one morning he's sitting alone in a small cafe in Aberdeen having breakfast in a gas main gave in the kitchen and blew that man into eternity. And Begg says, was he more guilty? No. Is there a lesson to be learned? Absolutely. Let the sudden passing of those who name the name of Christ and walk in unrepentant sin stand as a warning to those of us who are tempted to play the fool. If you're playing the fool this morning, you need to remember that there is a moral order and that God, God, is, God is not, does not take sin lightly. And yet, you see... Uh, we have to listen to what Jesus says here in this text, in this context. So why, why does Jesus say what he, what he does? Why does he so quickly say no when there seems to be evidence that the answer might be yes? We've got to just pay attention here. Jesus is not denying that God still responds at times in direct judgment. He's not denying that. But he exposes a devastating oversight in the false assumption of the crowd. Notice the specific nature of Jesus' question. He says, do you think that these tragic individuals were worse sinners? Do you think that they were worse offenders? Because you see, that is exactly what the people thought. They had a category in their world of those who were worse offenders. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, drunkards, thieves. There was, a, there was a category for people like that. And those who were in that category were the ones in danger of these sorts of outbreaks, this sort of judgment. And everyone who wasn't in that category was more or less safe. That's the false assumption. It reminds me of a story Two guys are out hiking in the wilderness and they come into a large meadow up in the mountains and they're halfway across and they notice a bear is coming at them from the other direction. And one of the men quickly throws off his hiking boots and reaches into his bag and starts putting on running shoes. And his friend looks at him and says, What are you doing? You can't outrun a bear. And the man says, I don't need to outrun the bear, I just need to outrun you. There are all kinds of people who think exactly that way when it comes to their soul. They're living their life. They recognize that judgment is real. And yet they are convinced, as long as they're on the upper end of the moral scale, as long as they can outdo some of the other worse sinners, that they don't really need to worry about judgment. 
I don't know how many times I've asked people, if you were to die tonight and you were going to stand in the presence of God and you said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And their, and their answer is, I did the best I could. I believed in God. I wasn't a murderer. I wasn't a rapist. You see, it's the, it's the worst sinners. They're, in, they're the ones in danger of judgment. But as long as I'm basically a good person, as long as I believe in Jesus, as long as I'm nice to my neighbors and maybe go to church, then I don't need to be worried about judgment. It won't happen to me. Jesus says, well, it's just not true. It's not true. You see, he's not denying, he's not denying the idea that great sinners are in great danger. He's denying the idea that some sinners are lesser sinners and therefore are safe. There are no lesser sinners in the eyes of divine judgment. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one who does good, not even one, and therefore no one is safe. Nobody can hide from divine judgment. Everyone is in danger by nature. And so you see what Jesus is saying to this this audience, to these people who assumed that the Tower of Siloam would not fall on them, Jesus is saying it is about to. It's about to fall on you. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's the main point. That's the main point. Every man, woman, and child born to Adam is walking daily under a collapsing tower of Siloam. And the sudden death, then, you see, of those 18 is just a powerful reminder of the imminent and unavoidable reality of your own death. You all have an appointment with the tower of Siloam. Every single one of you. So the only question is, are you ready? I remember listening to the recordings of frantic phone calls made to emergency operators when the planes hit the towers in New York on September 11. People pleaded for help, some of them sobbing and saying, I'm not ready to die. I'm not ready to die. And then they died. Are you ready? Are you ready? The sands of time are sinking, brother. 2016 is here. 2015 is gone. The day of your death is ever approaching. Are you ready for your meeting with the Tower of Siloam? You ready for your meeting with the Lord? That's what Jesus is saying. How can you know? How can you know? Well, Jesus applies it, doesn't he? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See, the, the, the beautiful thing about the gospel is that it comes to people who actually are dying, not just people who are having a tough time, uh, people who are not quite able to be good enough, but to people who are perishing. That's who the gospel comes to. And Jesus tells people like that, people like us, that there is time to find life. There is a way of escape. There's a way to avoid the, des- the, the, the destruction that we deserve. There's a, there's a means of being saved, and, and the path is uh, repentance. That's the gospel call. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. There is, there's no Jesus outside of that gospel call. The Jesus that saves, saves through repentance and faith. It is the means that he uses. He doesn't use any other means. So this is critical. This is throughout the gospel. Just if you want to do something, just take your Bible and maybe look at a concordance to see how often the word repent or repentance shows up in the gospel accounts. It is the core message. So what is it? 
Jesus commands us to do it. He says if we, don't, if we do not do this, if we do not repent, we will perish. And he means it. So it's critical we know this because our, our instinct is to go into penance. Our instinct, once we realize that we've sinned and we've offended God, is to try to make up for it, to try to improve ourselves, to try in some way to get ourselves back in the right God. That's the legalistic bent. In fact, we would vastly prefer that. Just show me what I need to do. Show me how to make this right. People would vastly rather than do that than humble themselves and repent. What is repentance? Well, repentance is confession, contrition, and Christ. Confession, contrition, and Christ. It's confession in that agreeing with God that your sins deserve his just penalty. Agreeing with the law of God, agreeing with the verdict of the law of God that you've sinned, you've fallen short of the glory of God, and that there is nothing that you are able to do to just to rectify this situation. One of the ways that you'll know that you're getting this, that 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 repentance is, is, is real in your life is that you will stop worrying about the sins of other people. It is not possible for you to stand in view of the holiness of God, for you to stand in view of the wrath of God that you deserve and still be concerned about the sins of someone else, the wrongs that they've committed against you. You cannot be a victim and a repentant person at the same time. When you stand in front of the presence of God, you realize that it is your sin and your sin alone that you will have to answer for and you will answer for them unless you repent. Secondly, it involves contrition. It's a heartfelt grief that I have so offended the God who made me that I have rebelled against untold kindness and love and grace. It is Contrition is an act of a regenerate heart that's been softened by the grace of God where you realize that God has been so kind to you and yet you've sinned against him so often, so awfully. But the, the essence of repentance is that it is a turning to Jesus It's a turning to Christ. There are all sorts of people who are attempting, even this week, you see, they've made their New Year's resolutions, and they're going to be better this year. And they're going to put off this bad habit, and they're going to change this particular uh, pattern in their life. And they mean it. They mean it. They're going to be more thankful this year. They're going to be more gracious and more generous and more whatever and less of that. And they mean it with all their heart. But you see, there is no power in your good intentions or mine. The power comes from Jesus. And so repentance is turning to Jesus. It's a running to Jesus. Both for forgiveness and for transformation. It's, it's, it's turning from my pattern and recognizing the sin that it is and running to Jesus. I want to be like him. And so you see, it, it, it turns from sin not just because it wants to avoid the consequences. It's okay to want to avoid the consequences, but if that's the sole reason you're turning from sin, you're no different than the drug addict who just wants to be done with it because he's sick of what it's doing to his life. There's nothing of God in it. Repentance, friends, is you face-to-face with God. I don't know how else to say that. 
And it doesn't matter what that guy did. It doesn't matter what this girl said. It is what, it's you in front of a living God, you with your sin. They all have your name written on them, and the law's verdict stands against every one of them. And the only hope you have is that God gives you the grace to repent. That, that God, so often we just say, well, you know, I confess it, and I believe God forgives me. Great. But Jesus calls you to repent. He calls you to repent. Confess the truth, a contrition, heartfelt sorrow because of the sin, and a fleeing to Jesus Christ. How do you get that? How do you get that? If that's essential, if there is no salvation without repentance, how do you get this? Well, we have to recognize it is a gift that God gives. You don't work it up. It's a gift that God gives as you ask for it. As God, when God gives you his Holy Spirit, when he changes your heart, it is what happens. But one of the key things that God uses is, the, is his kindness. Romans chapter 2, 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, it's the kindness of God that we experience every day. The sun rises, and it's, and it's beautiful. And the seasons change, and your family is, is, is there, and they're still for you, even though they know you, and, and your friends haven't given up on you. And God sends the rain and, and things grow. God's kindness is all through creation. And, and the fact that you're here today, why are you still here to see 2016? It would not take a long review of your life to realize there were many times where you maybe could have or should have passed away. Why did you avoid the fatal accident? Why didn't your tire blow out and your vehicle flip over in the meeting on the expressway and you're suddenly taken into glory? Why didn't that happen to you? It happens to other people. Why did you avoid the deadly disease? Why did you avoid the fatal misstep? Why? Why weren't you in the crowd when the, when the, when the car plowed in and people were, were taken off this world? Why hasn't the Tower of Siloam fell on you? It's not because you're lucky. It's not because you've been keeping your nose clean. It's because God has been gracious and kind to you. He's so kind. And God desires that his kindness, friend, would lead you to repentance. God wants his kindness as you realize you don't deserve that kindness. He wants you to realize that his kindness is grace and that that grace would break your heart. Why would the God, the Father, send his son to die? You see, the gospel should be the ultimate evidence of the kindness of God for you so that it changes you, it breaks your heart, it makes you, it makes you repent and turn and be saved. Martin Luther, the first of his 95 theses, is that the whole of the Christian life is a life of repentance. This isn't a one-time thing that we do. To repent is an ongoing, it's a manner of life. It's how we walk with the Lord. A friend, God promises great things to those who repent and those who live a life of repentance. He promises great things. The angels in heaven rejoice when a sinner repents and as he keeps on repenting. Jesus told the story, two men went up to the temple to pray and one said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this other man. Because you see, he had it all figured out that those who live the good life, those who live a moral life, they get the blessings. And, and the other man looked in, and beat, he could not even lift his eyes, but beat his breast saying, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, that man went home justified. Justified. Declared innocent, righteous in the sight of God. That man went home with all the favor of God upon him. Do you have the favor of God upon you in 2016? Are you confident about that? Do you know how you can receive that every day? You can have the confidence that God is for you, that he's not against you. The Bible says repent every day. Repent. 
That's not, that doesn't mean beat up in yourself. It means every day acknowledge the truth about what you are and every day turn to Jesus Christ and rest on who he is. And every day turn to him and rest on what he's accomplished. And every day then by his power say, Jesus, I want to live for you. I want to live for you in my marriage. I want to live for you in my friendships. I want to live for you in my sexuality. I want to live for you in my work. I want to live for you in my entertainment. Everything in my life belongs to you, Lord Jesus. I want to live it for you. Friends, that's life. That's what God calls us to. That's what Jesus invites us to. Is that where you are? Is that where you are? May God grant it. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that he came not simply to reveal our sin, but Jesus came to rescue us from it. What an amazing thing that we can be saved by repentance and repentance being the gift that you give. So Lord, give us the grace to repent and believe. Some of us, Lord, walk around day after day and year after year with guilt and shame attached to our conscience. And we're doing our best to try to make it right and to try to amend what's been wrong and to cover the sin and the shame. And Jesus, you invite us into the freedom today of simple repentance and faith. That we confess the sin and we go to Jesus and then we leave it there. And we live then today and tomorrow and this year believing that he's a friend for sinners. Lord, some of us are in unrepentant sin and we don't know how to repent. We know we're in the wrong. We know that there are dire things warned if we do not repent. And yet we don't know how to fix it. We don't know how to change. Lord, I pray that you would open blind eyes today, that you would break proud hearts that you would give the gift of repentance because without repentance, Lord, we will perish. Jesus, I thank you that you speak truth to us, but I thank you that you speak it in the interest of grace, in the interest of salvation. I pray, Lord Jesus, that this year we would be a repenting congregation. We'd be quick to confess our sin. We'd be quick to believe the gospel. We'd be quick all year long to trust in your power to forgive us and to transform us. That gospel humility and gospel love, gospel peace would be evident all because of Jesus, the one who came to bear the wrath that we deserve, the one who came to suffer the judgment in our place, to give us his righteousness for our very own, to place his life within us, to be our Savior, our Lord, our guide, our friend. We pray it in his name. Amen.